Brooks, Dantry Leyland. It was the end, but the moment had been prepared for. Tom Baker announced his retirement from the role of Doctor Who on October 24th, 1981, after seven years in the role. By his own admission, Baker had become somewhat difficult, arguing with writers, directors and other actors, and felt, in retrospect, he'd stay too long. His private life, he was in a relationship with Romana actor Lala Ward, was causing problems on set and off, but also offset, he was diagnosed with an illness that left him looking gaunt and quite unwell on screen. All of this caused him to behave quite badly. To be fair to Baker, he has admitted his shortcomings in more recent years, even apologising in some cases. But some of the actors he worked with have made it quite clear. Working on Baker's final season, the 18th, was no stroll through the TARDIS. Sarah Sutton, who played Nyssa, has even gone so far as to say if Baker had been staying for another year, she would not have accepted the offer to continue the role of series regular. Baker had, by that point, been threatening to quit every year for the past three. It became a running gag. He'd announce he was leaving, the producer would beg him to stay, and they'd all laugh about it down the BBC pub later on. That was until new producer John Nathan Turner accepted his offer to go. Peter Davison was announced as Baker's successor on November 5th, Bonfire Night, 1980, a mere 12 days later. Davison was a massive TV star in Britain at this time, largely due to his role in the BBC's adaptations of James Herriot's novels All Creatures Great and Small, where he played Tristan Farnham. All Creatures ran from 1978 to 1990, but in true British television tradition, it took eight years off in between seasons three and four, the gap supplemented by Christmas specials. This gap allowed Davison to take on the role of Doctor Who. Aged 29, Davison was, at that time, the youngest actor to play the role, and had many of the same qualities of the man who took that title off him, actor Matt Smith. Both were young men, capable of selling a weariness beyond their years just through their eyes, which seemed to hold the memories of a lifetime. Or many lifetimes. Davison was always a busy actor. He starred in two sitcoms, Holding the Fort for ITV, and Sink or Swim for the BBC at the same time that he was playing the Doctor, a workload that would be unthinkable nowadays. But also unthinkable for Davison was turning the role down. His relative youth meant Davison was the first actor to play the role who'd grown up watching it. He recalls being a fan when Patrick Troughton played the part, and a chance meeting in the BBC car park between the two men cemented the deal. It also cemented how long Davison would stay. Davison's casting was a seismic shockwave. He was an extremely well-known face on television at that time, the complete opposite of Tom Baker, who was a relative unknown. His role in All Creatures meant he brought a certain amount of baggage with him, not least the nickname The Wet Vet. This did a serious disservice to Davison, a thoughtful and considerate actor who brought some youth and vigour back to the part, whilst also selling the appearance of a man far older than his years. Unlike Baker, Davison's outfit as the Doctor was more sedate, albeit with the caveat that it looked intentionally like cricket whites. The outfit was suggested by Davison, a big cricket fan, and whilst it is in no way as girish as the outfit that followed, it still has those dumb question marks on the shirt lapel. 
Nevertheless, Davison made a striking and entertaining doctor. Whilst Nathan Turner was insistent that Davison not be too funny, he still managed to bring some of his own acerbic sarcasm to the proceedings. Davison is aided immeasurably by his co-stars, as, for the first time in years, the Doctor is joined by three additional companions, Nyssa, played by Sarah Sutton, Adric, played by Matthew Waterhouse, and Tegan, played by Janet Fielding. But it's fair to say that Waterhouse was relatively new to acting, he was surrounded by two other actors who, when given the choice, could really elevate a scene. In retrospect, Tom Baker's final season is very much a clearing of the decks for the new incumbent. Adric, a mathematical genius from the planet Alzarius, first appeared in Full Circle, the third story of season 18. Romana and K-9 are written out in Warrior's Gate, the fifth story of the season, leaving the Doctor alone with Adric. Nyssa first appears in the next story, The Keeper of Traken, which also establishes a new master, played by Anthony Ainley, and the final story of the season, Logopolis, introduces Tegan and the Fifth Doctor. This is pretty much the main cast as we'll go forward with the show for the next few years, with Ainley being especially long-lived as the master, appearing with every subsequent Doctor until the cancellation of the series in 1989. Season 18 also doesn't feel of a piece with the rest of Baker's era, rather a prelude of what is to come. Nathan Turner brought a glossier feel to the series with new credits, a new arrangement of the theme and an overall higher production quality to the series than was seen of late. The past few seasons of Baker's run could most charitably be described as ramshackle. Nathan Turner changed all that. Well, mostly. All these changes make Tom Baker's Doctor look like he's the odd one out when season 18 is viewed in retrospect, like he's wandered into a Peter Davison episode by mistake. Here is that new arrangement of the theme, which made its debut for season 18, Tom Baker's final season of Doctor Who. It's also available as a BBC 7-inch single and available at all good record stores right now. Again, though... I more associate this with Peter Davison's era than with Baker's, but see what you think. Despite these changes, season 18 also marked one of those periodic downturns in Doctor Who's fortunes. Stiff competition from ITV's new glossy American import, Book Rogers in the 25th century, had seen Who's ratings plummet by over 50%. Could even the might of Peter Davison turn the series around? Well, it wasn't just Davison. Faced with this attack, the BBC moved Who from its perennial Saturday night time slot to Mondays and Tuesday nights at 7pm. This was not only to protect the show, still a valuable asset in the Beeb's arsenal, but also to test the waters and see if the viewers would show up for a twice-weekly drama. Doctor Who was being used as a trial for EastEnders. Where this ensemble was served best was in episodes where they all got something to do. Nowhere was this better exemplified than in Black Orchid, 
a Roar two-part story written by Terence Dudley and directed by Ron Jones. It originally aired on March 1st and 2nd, 1982, on BBC One. The episode opens with a brutal murder. A woman who looks surprisingly like Nyssa, a man bound and gagged on a bed, who were missus, and an aborigine reading a book. Hmm. Let's leave it to the Doctor to explain where we are, shall we? Where are we? Earth again. I did say I wanted to stay with the crew for a while. You can stop trying to get me back to Heathrow. I have. You certainly know how to fly this crate, don't you? What's the matter, old girl? Why this compulsion for planet Earth? What is this place? A railway station. Ah, oh, but when? Three o'clock, June the 11th, 1925. I haven't been born yet. It's interesting, isn't it? And no jet lag. Shall we go outside? You think that's wise, considering what we've just done to London? Oh, that would have happened if we'd been there or not. All part of Earth's history. I hope you're right. Well, I'd like to take a look. Come on. What is a railway station? Well, a place where one embarks and disembarks from compartments on wheels drawn along these rails by a steam engine. Rarely on time. What a very silly activity. You think so? As a boy, I always wanted to drive one. I've always been intrigued by this scene. Does this mean they had steam trains on Gallifrey? The Doctor and co are picked up by Lord Cranley's chauffeur, who is there to pick up the Doctor, oddly, but not that one, and seems fascinated by Nyssa. Obviously, this is a case of mistaken identity, but one the Doctor and his friends lean into. And then, in the middle of an episode of Doctor Who, we are treated to a cricket match. I say treated. As someone who only really came to appreciate cricket in later years, it may seem somewhat peculiar to spend an inordinate amount of time playing cricket and watching it in an episode of Doctor Who, but the location filming is quite lush and the cricket jargon no more techno-babbly than the usual Doctor Who dialogue. It's somewhat strange a Time Lord from the planet Gallifrey should love to play cricket, but he likes steam engines as well, so everybody has their something. Humour here is derived from Tegan enjoying and understanding the cricket, presumably because she's Australian, and Nissa and Adric looking on, nonplussed and confused. Davison really did most of the action, and even bowled the batter out in one scene, a moment he's inordinately proud of. Location filming took place at Buckinghamshire Railway Station, Withyham Cricket Club and Buckhurst House, all in East Sussex. All locations that still exist and were revisited by the cast for the Now and Then feature on the Season 19 Blu-ray set. Lord Cranley is also fascinated with Nyssa and we learn this is due to her remarkable resemblance to Cranley's fiancée, Anne Talbot, a dual role for Sarah Sutton. There's some great Noel Coward dialogue here such as Top Hell! Ripping performance, old boy, and come and meet the mater. The Doctor's performance on the green causes Lord Cranley to invite him and his companions to the manor where they are having a masquerade ball. It's the 1920s. Of course there's a masquerade ball. 
Needless to say, Nissa and Anne dress in the same outfit, just to doubly ensure confusion. The Doctor is given a Harlequin outfit, and Tegan is a flapper girl. I have to be honest, Tegan's costume gave me lusty wrong feelings as a kid. As an adult, I can't help but notice that Janet Fielding fills it out quite admirably. Oink. Obviously, as a masked ball, things have to go badly. The Doctor lets his curiosity get the better of him and he finds himself trapped in the house's hidden corridors. Because a mansion house in the 20s has to have hidden corridors. And his costume is stolen by the murderer who, Kel surprise, murders again. Tegan, meanwhile, admires a lovely black flower. A black orchid brought back from Orinoco by Lord Cranley's elder brother, George, on a botanical expedition to South America. Now, you haven't watched enough telly if you haven't figured out that the Doctor is blamed for the next murder, even after the Doctor himself discovers another dead body hidden in the secret passageway, whilst the real killer, dressed in the Doctor's Harlequin outfit, now stalks the party, intent on Anne. There are parallels to Jane Eyre here, with the mad relative in the attic, and there are some niggles. Why does Anne look so much like Nyssa? No explanation is given, not even a wacky sci-fi one. Nyssa isn't even from Earth, so they can't hand-wave it away as a distant relative. And let's not think too much about the overall family relationships here. Brother George is, as far as Lord Cranley knows, just gone missing in Orinoco. He's not dead, and yet he's just moved in on his fiance, A fiance who is considerably younger than him, because she looks exactly like Nyssa, and he won't let Nyssa have a drink because he thinks she looks like a child and is underage. Hmm... Anyway, Anne is attacked by someone wearing the Doctor's Harlequin outfit, leading to a case of mistaken identity. And to prove his innocence, the Doctor tells the police he's a Time Lord and just shows them the TARDIS. Okay, I know the Doctor doesn't have a secret identity or anything like that, but this lax approach to thing leads to people like Clive being thought of as a wacky conspiracy theorist by his poor wife and the organisation of groups like Linda. Funnily enough, Davison's Doctor will refer to that Linda lot when he would return to the show from a Children in Need special with his future son-in-law, David Tennant. The murderer, of course, is George. You probably figured that out. There aren't that many other suspects. He returned from his expedition disfigured and without a tongue thanks to local natives who objected to him just taking the Black Orchid, a sacred flower. There's a lesson about colonialism, though. George was engaged to Anne and is only trying to reach out to her, albeit in the rather extreme way of killing anyone who gets in his way. Sadly, he too is killed accidentally, I'm sure, after realising that he's kidnapped Nyssa instead of Anne. Black Orchid exists as an extended edition on the Blu-ray, with some deleted scenes added back into part one. These are nice to see and concern the car drive from Cranley Hall to the cricket pitch and some more fancy dress ball scenes, but they neither add nor detract to the overall. Black Orchid is quite unique in Who history. It's the first two-part story since 1975, and the first purely historical episode since 1965. It's also not based around a historical event like most historical stories. I was surprised to hear that the cast, Sarah Sutton accepted, don't really like this one, as they all look like they were having a ball. 
Personally, I very much enjoy Black Orchid as a lovely change of pace adventure. It doesn't amount to much, but it looks nice and it's not too long or drawn out. The lack of any science fiction at all, excluding that our main characters are time-travelling aliens, obviously, also adds to the overall difference to this story's feel. George is rather tragic, and we'd feel sorry for him if he wasn't wantonly murdering people. His death is rather sad, though, in that his brother was trying to reach out and help him, making this episode quite unique in other ways. The bad guy was family secrets, rather than any real intent to harm. This isn't the precursor to an alien invasion. It isn't the answer to a long-held riddle where we learn that aliens are responsible for a dead lighthouse. It's just a story that takes place in the 1920s that the Doctor and his companions just wander into. After Who, Davison carried on to great success. He starred in the dark comedy A Very Peculiar Practice, my personal favourite of the things he's done in 1986 through 1988. He followed this up with murder mystery series Campion between 1989 and 1990, plus leads in many other series, including At Home with the Braithwaites, The Bradley Mysteries, The Last Detective, Fear, Stress and Anger with his daughter Georgia, and the UK version of Law and Order. In addition, he's made many guest appearances in shows as varied as The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Miranda, Toast of London, and, most bizarrely, an episode of Magnum P.I. He's happily maintained an association with Doctor Who, appearing at conventions, on DVD and Blu-ray extras, and on commentaries with regularity. He looks back on his time fondly, albeit acerbically, being very critical of his scripts and often his own performances. Davison's co-stars refer to him fondly, and they all seem to have a pretty good relationship with each other. Fielding and Davison seem to be the bickering siblings, and poor Sarah Sutton is planted squirrely in the middle, being the peacemaker. He's returned to the show a few times since he left, both in character and not. In 2007, Davison returned as the Doctor, alongside David Tennant, for a special eight-minute Children in Need short, in which the two Doctors met when their TARDIS collided across two different time zones. He returned again in 2022, appearing alongside Janet Fielding in The Power of the Doctor, Jodie Whittaker's final episode. In between, he wrote and directed The Five-ish Doctors, a 2013 comedy spoof about how he, Sixth Doctor Colin Baker and Seventh Doctor Sylvester McCoy were left out of the 50th anniversary special. He regularly takes part in the Big Finish audio range. He's still part of the Doctor Who family, Literally, in one case, as his daughter, Georgia, is married to former Doctor Who, David Tennant. Still active and vibrant and a regular face on British television, we can only hope he returns many more times in the future. Davison is a much underrated Doctor, and his era was a massive change for the show, regaining many of the viewers who'd left for the charms of Erin Gray and returning the show to its rightful state as a British institution when he starred in the 20th anniversary special, The Five Doctors. Davison's era was the last time the BBC cared about the show and cultivated it, promotionally and creatively, until 2005, when they would bring it back to great success. He was the last Doctor to have both critical and commercial success in its original run, and the last time the show wasn't seen as something of a joke or an embarrassment due to mismanagement and deliberate sabotage. Davison was a very different Doctor to what came before, but in many ways, he pointed us towards what would come. 
Youthful, energetic and vigorous, but with kind hearts and an old soul, Davison paved the way for Tennant, Matt Smith and Jodie Whittaker. It's not a bad legacy, all things considered. In 1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2. An enjoyable film with some flaws, but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? Okay, let's have a look at the email section. Matt Prather has emailed in again. Hello, Matt. Hello, Andrew. Oh, it's a Doctor Who. I love it when the emails match the subject matter. I don't have a lot of experience with Doctor Who, says Matt. As a young man, I would watch an odd episode here and there when I was sick and looking for something fun to entertain myself. With Who being heard on PBS over here in the States, I just got a smattering of shows. Never had any real sense of the characters in any significant way. The overall premise was clearly defined, but continuity was harder to get a grasp on, and made it all the more interesting. Then as an adult, I had a nasty bout of pneumonia, and ended up watching a couple of seasons of Matt Smith's run that the BBC was playing in a marathon. I was interested in following at least the rest of his run, and went back and watched some of the previous runs as well. Great fun every time out. All that being said, I seem to have a vague recollection of the shows from my childhood you cover every time. Looking back at my Who watching, I can only include I was sick more often than I thought, or watched The Doctor more than I thought. It's always entertaining, but far from a clear neural pathway to this information, without the prompting of your podcast. Thanks. We could all use more memories of giant robots. Thanks. You rock, Matt Prather. Well, thank you, Matt. I very much appreciate that. I do rock, don't I? And yes, we could all do more memories of giant robots, especially when they're being seen off by Jelly Baby wielding scarf wearers. Who doesn't love a scarf wearer? And that's it. There are no more emails today. What's next, I hear you all ask. I don't know. Who can say? It's all very difficult. I have been watching season two of Doctor Who on Blu-ray. The original series two from 1964-1965 starring William Hartnell as the Doctor. Most of them are pretty good. There's some damn good Dalek stories on there. There's a couple of good other stories as well. I'm wrapping that up. So who knows? Maybe some of that. Maybe something else completely different. Who can say? Maybe I'll go back to Spider-Man. If you want to email in like Matt, hey kids, comics at Virgin Media is the way to do so. 
or you can message me or whatever. I'm on the socials. Everything's going to be okay. And we'll see you again real soon. Goodbye.